Life of Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Treatment of neighbors. Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, always treated his neighbors with extreme kindness and consideration. He used to say that the angel Gabriel had emphasized consideration towards one neighbors so often that he sometimes began to think that a neighbor would perhaps be included among the prescribed heirs. Abu Dhar, peace be upon him, relates that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said to him, Abu Dhar, while broth is being cooked for your family, add a little more water to it so that your neighbor might also share in it. This does not mean that the neighbor should not be invited to share in other things, but as the Arabs were mostly a migratory people and their favorite dish was broth, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, referred to this dish as a typical one and taught that one should not think so much of the taste of the food as of the obligation to share it with one's neighbor. Abu Huraira, peace be upon him, relates, On one occasion the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, exclaimed, I call God to witness that he is not a believer. I call God to witness that he is not a believer. I call God to witness that he is not a believer. The companions inquired, Who is not a believer, O Messenger of Allah? And he replied, He whose neighbor is not secure against injury and ill treatment at his hands. On one occasion, when he was addressing women, he said, If anybody finds only the foot of a goat to cook, that person should share it with his or her neighbor. He asked people not to object to their neighbors driving pegs into their walls or putting them to any other use which occasioned no injury. Abu Huraira, peace be upon him, relates, The Prophet said, He who believes in God and in the day of judgment should occasion no inconvenience to his neighbor. He who believes in God and in the day of judgment should occasion no inconvenience to his guest. And he who believes in God and in the day of judgment should utter only words of virtue or should keep quiet. Muslim Writings of the Promised Messiah In order to establish the oneness of God, it is of utmost importance that one should love God to one's full capacity. And this love cannot be verified unless it reaches its perfection in a practical form. It cannot be proved with lip profession. You know, if somebody just talks of sugar, he cannot find the taste of sweetness in his mouth. Or, if somebody expresses the feeling of friendship, but does not help his friend in times of need, he cannot be called a true friend. Likewise, if somebody just talks of the oneness of God, but does not love him as he should, it cannot be of any avail. What I really mean is that practice is very important along with the precept. That is why it is necessary that you should dedicate your lives in the way of God. And this is the real Islam for which I have been sent to the world. Thus, he who does not come near this fountain that God has made to flow is very unfortunate. His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed, the present head of the community, continues in his effort to unite people from all faiths and cultures by promoting interfaith dialogue and religious freedom. He has traveled extensively to spread the message of peace and to remind everyone to respect the rights of other human beings. During these tours, His Holiness has met world leaders from the Far East to Europe, from North America to Africa, 
discussing the economic, social and political problems facing the world today and how to create peace and justice in the world. He has also met religious and community leaders in order to share common values and core ideals universal to all religions and cultures with a view to improving the moral state of mankind and creating an atmosphere of love and affection. From young to old, he compassionately listens to the ordinary man, regardless of race, color or religion. He has personally initiated social projects and schemes to alleviate poverty and human suffering. His concern is not just about the well-being and moral state of the members of the Ahmadiyya community, but of the great human suffering of mankind at large. The Ahmadiyya community knows only that Islam, which is the Islam of love and affection, offers a real message of peace and security. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May the peace and blessings of Allah be with upon you all. You're joining me today on Saturday morning live. Uh, I'm your presenter, Rohan Ullachima, and today on the studio we've got with me Malik Takrim Ahmed and also Umar Bhatti. Takrim, how's it going today? Okay. Yeah, alhamdulillah, it's not going too bad. Um, bit of a busy week, last couple of weeks of university, just finishing off assignments and, you know, just kind of trying to keep on top of things before the Christmas break, revising for exams and then finally get time to breathe, you know, over the Christmas break, inshallah. Um, but yeah, how about you? Yeah, yeah, all good. Um, same with me, keeping myself busy with things that have been going on um, and uh, going to talk about some of the stuff that's been happening in the last couple of weeks as well, which is related to the topics we'll be discussing today. So as usual, we'll do our news round first. We will cover some of the recent news or um, headlines that have been coming up. Um, we will also be discussing around some of the inf- implications that we're seeing from the um, Israel and Palestine conflict and how that's reaching out to even to the UK and uh, um, the effects of that that we're seeing here. And uh, also we'll be talking about COP28 and uh, what is the need for this, what's being discussed this year um, and what are the future goals in regards to this as well. Um, so we'll get started with the news rounds. So Takrim, do you want to give yours first? Yeah, um, sure. So um, 
an interesting news uh, kind of article I saw this morning was uh, quite quite a broad headline. I think the main headline on BBC News this morning, uh, which was about uh, Boris Johnson to apologise to COVID inquiry, but say he got big calls right. And interesting. Last night I was um, I was reading a thread on Twitter actually about um, kind of the key uh, break- takeaways from the COVID inquiry um, so far, and explaining how kind of they've interviewed. Um, They've interviewed uh, Matt Hancock, actually, and he was kind of claiming that he had responsibility from January to March, and then he handed it over to Boris Johnson, and so on and so forth. Um, and kind of, I was reading the article, and, and Boris Johnson was talking about kind of how he's expected to apologise for kind of, you know, sort of the way, not the way he handled it, but kind of the way he was advised, and kind of the, the decisions he took, but also kind of mitigate that by saying that, you know, he was under a lot of pressure, a lot of high-key decisions to make. You know, he was the only one that's, you know, in government who could make those decisions, uh, and so on and so forth. He's already submitted a 200-word uh, page uh, summary of his arguments and he's expected to be questioned by KC on Wednesday I believe so I think the whole nation will be waiting the whole you know the whole UK is going to be waiting about what he has to say about this issue there's a lot of key points you know um, why lockdown was initiated earlier why Italy was two three weeks earlier they started lockdown why we were so late um, you know and so on and so forth why was there a second wave etc etc um, because the evidence we've heard already from Dominic, Dominic Cummings the Boris Johnson's you know former chief advisor has been quite damaging already he's already thrown his former boss under the bus so kind of yeah and I was, I was seeing yeah. some um, there was an interview with Matt Hancock as well um, under kind of the same discussion here meaning that uh uh, Hong Kong obviously criticised as well the policies that were employed and he was also saying that if they had taken a lockdown earlier then they wouldn't have had to close schools in the way that they did but I think I don't see the point or the purpose of doing this apart from maybe um Boris Johnson defending his reputation. I think. I mean. I think at this point he has to because if he lets those, I mean, it's a very damaging thing for your former chief advisor to come out and say that you know you were a terrible boss. You you kind of over WhatsApp. You kind of you said provocative things and so on and so forth. Mm. And the leaked WhatsApp messages show that as well. And so I think he has to at this point. It's, it's damage control really. And the article actually describes it as a reputation management effort um, to defend not just his decisions and so on and so forth but more mainly the accusations of indecisiveness and his use of proactive language and those two key points Boris Johnson really needs to address to to manage reputation and kind of ensure that he um you know he's able to save face mm. you know sort of um so I think yeah it's really important for him to do that yeah I think but for, for the, I'd say this is more to do with his future career now mm, exactly yeah. damage control damage control exactly uh, and he's not just his uh, advisors a lot of other people have been saying the same as well and it's interesting because You'd have thought the COVID inquiry it's going to focus on substantive facts and evidence and kind of come to a formal conclusion. But again, it seems now to be just investigating people. Mm. And I think that's, that's, again, the issue with having governments and, and parties and kind of, uh, you know, having uh, party leaders being the, the focal point of the party's policy and so on and so forth, that the argument does not become then the policies of the government or the kind of the policies of the parties in charge. It becomes about one man and one man's personal character. And I see the point that, you know, Boris Johnson was, again, the key figurehead and the one making the decisions. But again, Again, we should be investigating those decisions were they based on you know scientific evidence and so on and so forth rather than again attacking his personal character mm. etc whether he was fit to lead or not um, I, think, I, no, but I think character is also very important I think when you're expecting someone mm. to be in that position of power you'd expect some sort of integrity mm. and responsibility from mm. them and also a lot of accountability we're all looking up to this person to fulfil certain things for our benefit I think I think that's important but I think the inquiry for example I mean, you're right in the sense the inquiry is kind of looking back at the past but mm. my thinking is that in the future how can we prevent this you know? oh, yeah. I mean 
like a kind of attacking character, kind of looking into someone's character is all well and good for the past, but when comes to the future, you really want to look at the systems and the processes in place and yeah. were those checks and balances, you know, correct and how can we change 100%, 100%. the system to ensure that in the future, you know, if we have a similar situation, similar emergency, do you have the right checks and balances um, and the right task flow process in, in place to yeah. ensure that, you know, this kind of thing doesn't happen again? Yeah, I think one of the things that back then was... Uh, the lack of communication. Obviously, mm. we had the daily updates we used to watch on the screen mm. uh, for 20 minutes, half an hour, wherever it was. Mm. But it wasn't clear enough and it would be very unpredictable in regards to what's going to happen, what's not happening within the next days or two, two mm. day or two. Mm. Um, I think one of the criticisms that is coming out now, there's a lot of things that could have been predicted earlier and implementations could have been t- taken earlier as well. Uh, it's very interesting you say that because when I started this Masters, I think I've probably talked on the show already, um, the, one of my professors actually, he was... The London School of Hygiene Tropical Medicine and uh, the London School of Economics, which I'm studying at the moment, um, they kind of had two very different models, population modeling, you know, uh, statistics and software that could predict kind of you know a pandemic and epidemics where they're going to mm. go. And actually, one of my professors, uh, I'm quite close with him, my mentor actually, he him and his team, you know, modeled it. I think to within five thousand deaths of the COVID virus within the first two weeks of the pandemic hitting the shores. And you know, the key takeaways that we're learning now: earlier lockdowns, harsh rules earlier on, relax, relaxing later on, so and so forth. These are key lessons they were already advising from the very start. So again, now again, the other question that people want to ask is that. We were actually aware of the fact that we need to lock down earlier. In mm-hmm. fact, I was reading Matt Hancock had a meeting with the Italian yeah. uh, health minister and he told him that you should have done this two weeks earlier, yeah. right at the very start. And even then they delayed it a few weeks until March time to start putting the lockdowns. I remember this is, oh yeah, when so, everyone was going to lockdown, we were wondering when it's going to happen. Exactly, yeah. right? So uh, the, all these key points, I think now this is why they're going to ask Boris Johnson the question that why didn't you do this earlier? Yeah. Why did you decide one thing and then change your mind a week later? Mm. Um, why did you take charge from you know Matt Hancock so late? Mm. So and so forth. So sure. yeah, interesting, I think, points. Yeah, I think there's a lot of the we had the internal um, kind of conflict conflicts but we'll find out exactly I mean the WhatsApp texts have revealed a lot um, but uh, yeah the issues within them and then also the, all the scandals and all that kind of stuff exactly, which, exactly. Which is very damaging at a point like that there's one accusation of, of uh, Dominic Cummings Matt Hancock was one of his biggest critics and he said now that he created a, a toxic culture at Downing Street mm. and so kind of whether that whether Boris Johnson defends that or not in his questioning remains to be seen in his 200 page summary actually uh, Boris Johnson did kind of uh, say those, those rumours were not true accusations were not true but did not condone any kind of uh, uh, kind of toxic culture and so on and so forth so kind of he's very maintaining a balanced uh, balanced approach so far so let's see what happens I suppose sure okay let's move on to the next story and this is in regards to criticism or for our current Prime Minister <laughs> which is Snack so there's always something happening right um, and this is in regards to the Parthenon sculptures. I'm mm. not sure if you've heard of the row recently happening. Well, it's mm-hmm. been on the news that uh, between the Greek Prime Minister mm-hmm. and uh, Rishi Sunak, um, and it's kind of expanding between just a, a row between the governments. And people are saying this is not just a, this is not necessarily related to politics, but it's a row on uh, about heritage, a row about culture, about what belongs to Britain and what doesn't belong to them. And this is specifically in regards to the Parthenon sculptures, which are located in the British Museum. And uh, these are claimed to belong. Well, these are, well, originally they're claimed to come from around 500 years before the birth of Christ. Mm. So you can imagine mm-hmm. how old these sculptures are. And these are claimed to have come originally from Athens in Greece. Um, and they were taken by. Uh, an explorer, as they claim, um, who then brought it to the UK. And it's only part of the sculpture. 
Um, so the Greek are now saying that it should be returned to us because it originally belonged to us mm. and you had no right to take it in the first place. Uh, the name's even been changed. So the person who, who brought the sculptures over was called Elgin. Mm-hmm. So now in the UK, it's referred to as Elgin Marbles. Mm-hmm. Whereas they're saying that this is, there's no credit, there's no source for this. Um, mm. It should be returned back to us. One person has actually claimed that uh, the fact that this is half of the sculpture uh, it's basically saying that you've taken half of Mona Lisa's painting and you brought it to the UK and the other half is still back in uh, Greece. So it doesn't make sense to separate both parts of the paintings like that in mm-hmm. the same way that you separated the sculpture. Mm. And what's actually happened is that there was supposed to be a meeting between the Greek Prime Minister and Rishi Sunak and one of the topics that were going to be discussed was the sculpture and the return of this to Greece. But Rishi Sunak actually cancelled that meeting before it was about to happen, mm. which really infuriated the Greek Prime Minister um, and I came across like uh, some news headlines of Greek newspapers on Twitter, and it was actually hilarious because they don't hold back. Like they went fully at Rishi Sunak, mm. the UK government, profanity, everything. Daily Mail esque almost. Yeah, it was, yep, it was it was very harsh. Um, so even the even the prime minister was quite. Um, he made an interview and he called Rishi Sunak a coward, mm. which is uh, quite a big deal. Before going back, um, and he was offered a um, meeting instead with the Deputy Prime Minister, um, Oliver Dowden, but he rejected that and he just decided to take a flight back home. Mm. So that doesn't look good. Um, Not at all. And Rishi Sunak's just saying that uh, he also had an interview saying that um, this is this is not a thing of importance right now um, when he's gone to COP28. I was just about to say, it doesn't seem like, it doesn't seem like um, you know, we, we as a country are giving much importance to this, but you know, this is definitely um, for a country like Greece very very important. I mean, I mean, I did a bit recently into it as well, and actually, I didn't even know that the Elgin Marbles were the same thing as the Parthenon, yeah. um, and the Parthenon is part of the Acropolis, which is a big big thing in Greek history. I remember yeah. reading about it, you know, as a kid. First of all, the fact that I didn't even know that those two were linked because they changed the name is a big thing. We've literally rewritten history, you know, in our minds, and we've changed the name of them so people don't associate with the, the rich culture that, that Greece has. And now the Greek and Roman cultures, two of the richest empires, two of the richest cultures that ever existed in Europe, yep. um, really, I think you know, the Greeks definitely have, definitely are right, definitely have a reason to be proud, proud of their heritage. Yeah. Um, Especially in recent years, recent years, where kind of fortunes might not be might not be the same, um, and so I think really um, we I think there's a difference there's a diff- definitely a difference in public opinion, and certainly in the opinion of the prime minister yeah. um, of our country uh, or, or or the UK compared to Greece in the importance of this matter. Yeah, it's it's, it's almost people claim it's almost as if we're trying to rewrite history. Exactly. Something belongs to the Greece and is very important and makes absolute sense to be there hmm. in terms of its uh, value and heritage. Hmm. What benefit does it have to sit within the British Museum? I think it's part of a wider question as well. Is that in general, is it okay to ever take these artifacts? Um, you know, a lot of the from the British Raj, for example. You know, a lot of the artifacts, a lot of you know the Queen's crown and so on and so forth, uh, the Star of India, you know, etc. All these kind of things are, are you know are taken from the cultures. A lot of artifacts from Africa as well. Yep. There's always been, I think, outcry. Um, so I think. Perhaps what the prime minister or perhaps what well, you, you, the government is scared of is that this might open the floodgates if they returned it to a lot of other things being you know taken back. And at one point, this something becomes ours and theirs. That's another key question as well. Um, post-colonialism as well is a bit is a big thing. And nowadays, people are coming towards the idea, realizing that the impacts of colonialism are not just on politics, economics, but on history and culture this, and so on and so forth. This has been turned into a discussion on politics, though, mm. because what's happened now? There's a, there's a conflict between what Labour and Conservatives are saying in mm. regards to this. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, actually met with the Greek Prime Minister on Monday. Okay. So obviously, he's trying to get in there, put his foot in there first. 
Um, and he's also done an interview where he said that Rishi Sunak's pathetic for cancelling that meeting with the Greek Prime Minister. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been opinion polls on both sides as well, what Conservatives think should happen and what the Labour Party should think should happen. And more people are favouring with the, the Labour side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so even when you think about something like this, which which the it's not generally what you think as mainstream politics or something that thinks the front row, mm. but it's still something which divides public opinion and sets their minds on which party is right, which party is wrong. Definitely, but then, kind of for me, also stinks a little bit of public pandering. I mean, yeah, for you know the stance by Keir Starmer, you know, I've, I've, I, maybe I'm just uneducated, but I've not heard him speak about kind of this issue before. Yeah, he so came he's, to front, he's not so. saying to fully return it. Hmm. So what Keir Starmer said that you should, uh, he he he's offering a temporary loan hmm. of the sculptures to Greece. <laughs> So, Neither here nor there. Yeah, so they could keep it for a bit and then please give it back. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, let's see if it comes to it, if they do give it back. Sure. Uh, let's move on. Uh, Takrim, do you have another news story you want to cover? I did actually. Um, perhaps as probably, probably one of the younger members of the team, this one is a bit more relevant to me. But apparently TikTokers... Not that much younger. I had to slip that one in there. Um, yeah, apparently lots of adults on TikTok are stopping vaping. Uh-huh. I think it's a great thing. Um, it is definitely a good thing, I'd say. Um, but they are stopping vaping not because of the health reasons and so on and so forth, which is quite a valid reason in my opinion, mm. but also because of the use of <coughs> lithium-ion batteries and the fact that lithium in the, the Democratic Republic of Congo is a producer of 70% of the, of the world's uh, cobalt and cobalt is essential for lithium-ion batteries and what's been happening recently is the UN has described it as, as one of the recent worst human, humanitarian crises in the world um, 6.9 million people I believe this year have uh, had to flee the area due to the conflict. What's happening is that multinational companies basically are coming into these cobalt-rich areas and kind of kicking out the local people in order to make space for their mining operations and housing the workers and so on and so forth. And that has led to severe conflict because they're involved in the government. Um, there's lots of instances of Congolese soldiers killing a lot of people, um, killing villages and citizens. Um, Islamist militants are kind of taking advantage of the bloodshed and the conflict and the chaos in the area to kind of exert their dominance and, and kind of uh, you know kill uh, citizens as well. I think 14 people early this week were, were killed as well uh, 14 villagers yeah it's, it's in the tens of thousands now yeah 6.9 million people leaving 6.9 million people is a lot of a lot crazy, of people yeah, in a country of 100 million as well so that's 7% of the population yeah, um, wow. which is which is a crazy crazy amount um, a report from Amnesty International in September found that you know the companies that were mining for copper as well copper and cobalt in, mm. in DR Congo had forcefully evicted entire communities with human rights abuses as well so villagers were beaten and yeah. uh, those who refused to leave their homes were beaten there's a case of ethnic cleansing going on as well around because when, when you've got areas of conflict now the militant groups obviously take advantage Exactly, exactly. Um, and have come, kind of come into the region and uh, a lot of people, like you said, have been suffering. It's interesting, though, that this activism that has mm. been taking place, it's, it's, it's taken the role of people are now avoiding to use products which are using that cobalt that comes mm. from Congo itself. <coughs> I think... I think it's it's given rise to a new brand of activism mm. and that is what we're seeing a lot recently which is climate change activism I think because cobalt mining is very linked to climate change as well right. um, uh, you know harming the environment producing these lethal um, kind of products and, and kind of actually I would say ethical ethical consumerism is probably the right term is what we're seeing a lot nowadays you can even trace back the roots of just stop oil and all these kind of, all these all these kind of um, kind of uh, com- organizations. So the fact that now people are looking at not just what we're buying, we're looking at how the stuff that we're buying is all how is it sourced, where is it sourced from, what are the climate impacts of it, what are the ethical impacts of it, what are the political impacts of it, mm. what are the humanitarian impacts of it, yeah. and that is kind of people are being you know a lot more educated about these things. 
and it's different again to how how these things vary as well. Um, I know we haven't got much time left in the news round, but I want to share something something with you. This week's uh, in this week's uh, one of my modules, uh, my course. Uh, the topic was this week was regarding. Uh, it was regarding uh, climate change, but kind of the the attitudes towards climate change in the West compared to the global South, as we call it. Um, previously, we used to call less developed countries, and kind of. The, essentially one of the conclusions was that people in the global south who may be living below the line of poverty and who may not have access to the resources of the education that we have it's not I want to say they don't care but they might not be as educated or they, they value kind of putting food on their plate more than where is the food coming from and climate change and, and attitudes towards that as well um, a bit of a controversial take but this highlights really the need for education in these countries and the kind of the need to establish the, the first foremost principles first of having peaceful life, having food on the, on the table, being able to, to put a roof over your, over your head and so on and so forth, and kind of addressing the basic needs of human living before then we can, we can think about, we can have the luxury of thinking about where are these products coming from, where is the water coming from, who's building those wells, where are these kind of the lithium, the batteries coming from, or where are these the solar panels that we need for electricity, who's building them. Um, and so on and so forth. In the West, we have that luxury of being able to choose, actually. And so this is why boycotting, kind of, uh, you know, stopping these things works because we can, we have the the the, the kind of the the freedom, but also the the yeah. power, the economic freedom to choose from where we buy and what we buy. Whereas in all these countries where we don't have that luxury, or, or there might not be, people only have one source of, for example, food. The, the food they come from comes from one place, for example, mm. or the clothes they buy, or the, or the shelter they they come, they they can live under comes from one place. They don't have the luxury of choosing that. Yeah. I think that's important to address when we look at things like, uh, you know, the sustainable development goals and why certain countries can't can't meet those targets. If you're expecting a country that only has, for example, cobalt mining might, might be their the biggest uh, form of the economy, asking to reduce that or make it more ethical will have an negative impact on the, on the economy, which will obviously upset a lot of people in that country. And so balancing out the ethical and sustainability aspect of it mm. with the practicalities of it is, I think, very important to look at is my, is my basically take on it. Yeah, and this is where inequality comes in again. Mm. Uh, and I think one of the discussions that are really, like you mentioned, is uh, uh, climate change policies which are being adopted now and how those have been really unfair because um, due to this certain overuse or misuse by certain corporations, nations, um third world countries have been suffering more even though they have never been able to harness uh, fossil fuels uh, with the capabilities that uh, obviously the West and other countries have so they've really missed out and now they're being told that we have to restrict its use um, you're not allowed to use it for this and that um, and you should try towards go towards more greener energy but if you've not even had to ability to do step one which is actually harness fossil fuels and use them for the benefit and it could really benefit obviously third world countries in that mm. sense as well but you're not being told to adopt something which is much more expensive and more difficult to incorporate. Um, it, it, it puts them in a very difficult position. And again, it puts us in a position where we're going to leapfrog uh, ahead mm. um, and uh, increase that gap mm. between us and the, in terms of our energy harnessing and our kind of uh, our industrial um, re- revolution. Again, let's say that, that's exactly the point I was going to make, which is that the argument used a lot by by you know economists and, and political theorists, especially in the field of development studies, the fact that the UK went through the industrial revolution 100 years ago, 120 years ago, 150 years ago, and the amount of climate uh, you know emissions they produced was was extraordinary. Yep. Now these countries, on the scale of development, for example, they are let's say 250, 200 years behind, and they're now going through the industrial revolution. Their economies are changing from.
from farming lands to more uh, production uh, side of things. Even in China, for example, um, I would say there's 50, 60 years behind in terms of the revolution, this revolution, the economy is changing. Now, why, why can we not allow them the same leeway? Why can we not allow them the same freedoms that we had? I mean, it's important to reduce emissions in terms of climate change, but we have to acknowledge that there is a balance between the use of fossil fuels in industrial revolution because let's face it at the end of the day fossil fuels are needed to increase to go through that revolutionary period right yeah. they are needed that's what we need to accept and the UK went through it the USA went through it they went through this, this stage and now they have the luxury of being able to cut down emissions and so on and so forth those countries which are at the cusp of that revolution which need those fossil fuels which is the argument then you know it's is it fair for us to say that actually no at this point no we did it but you can't do it yeah. just because they're on the wrong side of history just because they're 100 years late for example yeah. how are we to stop them and that is you know a key argument that, that you know needs to be evaluated um, yeah I think this is a whole another topic that we can go on for an hour so exactly. even I'd say that uh, the, the policies that the West or the people who have the ability to make rules now mm. uh, it should be in regards to uh, what changes they can make for them uh, they, sh- they should in regards to what changes they can make to them um, for example, it should be if they if we've now affected the environment and the atmosphere to a way there's no return mm. that we've increased the temperatures, uh, mm. we're seeing more natural disasters, etc. Then we should help those uh, countries in dealing with those. Exactly, I, I think it comes down to the principle of we always look at equality. But I would argue that there's a need for justice rather than equality. Mm. Equality doesn't mean that everybody has the same level of carbon emissions. Right. We have to acknowledge that the Western countries may well have to. Um, may well have to cut down more of their carbon emissions and allow more leeway for kind of uh, countries in the global south to acknowledge the fact that they're going through this industrial revolution and so on and so forth. So again, even things like sustainable development goals, I would disagree with. We had a big debate, you know, start of the start of the semester on, on kind of what they mean, yep. what the impacts and are they needed, etc. So on and so forth. And I argue that actually they're, they're based on the principle of equality, whereas really we should be based on the principle of justice yeah. and what is just rather than what is necessarily equal. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, like I said, we can go on with this topic. Um, we'll take a short break there and then we'll come back and start with our first topic of today. Selections from the writings of the promised Messiah upon whom be peace, the founder of the Ahmadiyya movement in Islam. The unity of God is a light which illumines the heart only after the negation of all deities, whether they belong to the inner world or the outer world. It permeates every particle of man's being. How can this be acquired without the aid of God and his messenger? The duty of man is only to bring death upon his ego and turn his back to devilish pride. He should not boast of his having been reared in the cradle of knowledge, but should consider himself as if he were merely an ignorant person and occupy himself in supplications. Then the light of unity will descend upon him from God and will bestow new life upon him. Selections from the writings of the promised Messiah, upon whom be peace, the founder of the Ahmadiyya movement in Islam. I look always with wonder at this Arab prophet, whose name is Muhammad, thousands of blessings and peace be upon him. How exalted his status was. One cannot perceive the ultimate limit of his station, and it is not within the scope of man to fully comprehend the depth and penetration of his ennobling qualities. Alas! Due recognition has not been paid to his lofty rank. That unity which had disappeared from the world was restored by this same valiant champion. He loved God most intensely. So also his soul was being consumed in deep sympathy for mankind. That is why God, 
who was fully aware of the hidden excellencies of his heart, exalted him above all the prophets and all the people of the past and the future, and fulfilled his heart's desires in the span of his lifetime. Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu and welcome back to Saturday Morning Life. I'm your host, Ruhan Lachima. I'm going to give an introduction again, and Malik Takrim Ahmed's here as well. And we've got Umar Bhatti in the studio as well. Um, how are you guys doing again? <laughs> um, as about half an hour ago, I'm still doing <laughs> well. well. I think this is mainly for Umar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it's pretty cold outside. So I'm not Salikum Festival. Good to speak to you. Pretty, pretty cold outside, freezing. It's cold, yes. Uh, I, w- I was wishing, wishing it w- and I hoped it would snow. So it did snow yesterday. Did it? Where, well, well, maybe in Croydon. Maybe. Or maybe not in near, closer mm, to London. Yeah, it snows allergic to Croydon, that's why. You'd think it wouldn't snow in yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, no, I'm hearing uh, snowing up in the in Scotland for oh, yeah, sure. They, they, maybe Bradford, do you know? If it it's, was, it was. The north was, was absolutely the north Leeds, covered, yeah? Bradford, yeah. yeah. I made a mistake. I went back last weekend, still going back this weekend and enjoyed the snow. That, Europe yeah. as well. Europe's pretty covered right now with snow. It's just whenever snow happens, it just seems like London misses out somehow. Yeah. It's very difficult for us now. When I was younger, I remember going to school and be, you know, this thick. I mean, viewers, can't, listeners can't hit, look at what I'm doing right now, but um, <laughs> kind of about literally eight, nine inches of oh, snow. Yeah, easily, yeah. easily. Yeah. A lot, a lot of snow. You know, you obviously up north is different as well compared to here. I was literally. I think like, us has been years now. Mm. Uh, no, actually, we've seen proper snow. Oh, well, we did have snow last year. I think. For a week. Well, it, it we did one, yeah. two day, for one it's day. Settled, I remember it was one day for a week. And that yeah. was it. There it was, was no other snow. It was a Christmas miracle, man. It was one day. I think it was 14 February when yeah. we had like two weeks of school off or something. Oh, yes, yes, I remember, yes, I remember that, that very, very, very well. I remember that. So it's ancient times. to memory. Good times. That, that one day last year, I remember I saw accommodation, we were having snowball fights. It was, it was, a, good, <laughs> yeah. it was a good experience. But again, lasted one day, Made really. Made the most of it, huh? Made the most of it. I'm not complaining. I don't think it's that bad. I, I was so happy with it. I was a kid One week of snow is more than enough for me. One, nah, day of, we, one day of snow is enough for me. Nah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, one don't be bothered that, man. Yeah, every single day of primary school. As you know, our economy drops with <laughs> one week. We're dropping 0.5. You clearly know where your intentions are then. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so we'll carry on with our show for today. Uh, and the first topic we wanted to discuss was in regards to, obviously this is, these are the headlines everywhere right now, um, on social media, on media channels. In regards to the... Israel-Palestine conflict and uh, we're not specifically talking about um, what's happening itself in Israel and Palestine in Gaza but we're more talking about the impact 
um, the implications we're seeing of the conflict and some of the double standards and injustice taking around this as well. And the one thing I want to start on, um, and something I'm quite, probably quite strong about as well, is the media reporting and the accuracy of media reporting. Um, and I think what we're seeing right now with the age of what we say, that it, well, we, it's the age of information, but mm. also the age of misinformation at the same time. And what I mean is that we are being told narratives which are conflicting, but we also have access to social media where pe- uh, we are seeing reports from the ground which in a way reveal the truth to us as well. And I think if it wasn't for that reporting that was happening on the ground, there would probably be a lot of things we are overseeing, um, we are missing out on, um, and also we are being falsely um, um, told about. For example, there's been uh, double standards in regards to the treatment of Palestinian versus Israeli victims. And I think that's been very clear as well. And I'll be pointing this out is that uh, if we are seeing, if we think that uh, um, Israeli children, uh, women or civilians are innocent, then why is it becoming so difficult for us to paint the Palestinian um, civilians, women and children as innocent as well? Why is this being conflated in a way where every single person who's being killed in Palestine is being done so as a result of being labelled as uh, human shields? So it, it was it was bound to happen. There was no choice in avoiding this, uh, or they're being somehow affiliated with Hamas, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for example, one of the things that uh, a lot of the um, Israeli spokespeople, even though people on social media, Ben Shapiro was this morning saying that the people that work there for Red Crescent, who work there for the UN in Gaza, are all affiliated with Hamas, which is why they're supporting mm-hmm. them and helping them. Um, and that's the problem that we're, who fact checks that. Because a lot of people eat up that information, mm. and everything that Ben Shapiro says, even though he's got he's got no position or authority in this, is is like a fact for them. Mm. And for example, one of the things that we've had a, a lot of discussion around was images that were being shared afterwards, after the conflict, after the events of seventh October, and what happened afterwards, mm. in regards to um, the dead bodies and pictures of that, um, mm. and this is a victim here, this is a victim here, this is what the police did here, and it's all just hearsay and news, uh, mm. and we have to kind of believe that. Mm. So I personally believe that it should be some sort of independent fact-checkers mm. or kind of like a group that's associated or made for that purpose. Mm. And I think that's something we lack right now. Mm. Um, and we're also seeing a distrust of, of uh Israel authorities of the Prime Minister and their politicians and their supporters of the UN as well because the UN have obviously been um, somehow criticising I wouldn't say as strongly um, as uh, you'd expect them to but they've been criticising and uh, um, condemning what Israel has been doing and uh, now Israel has, been, uh, has spoken against the UN and being like they're saying that they've been un- unfair and impartial not impartial and is in fact the you, one of the people who are kind of the UN um, supporters in terms of aid for Gaza have been denied a visa because they were trying to go there um, just this week and Israel says due to the fact that you've not been impartial about this we are denying you a visa and you're not allowed to come mm-hmm. which is actually uh, which actually um, crazy because these are the people who have been put in place uh, as an international body to try help people and try to create solutions mm and you're restricting them from coming in. But what do you guys think? Um, I think one of the things that really stood out for me is the um, double standards when it comes to speaking up for both rights. And I'm going to name some examples. There's a Hollywood actress called Melissa Barrera. 
Um, and she posted a story. She's a Mexican actress who works in Hollywood now, and she's famously known recently for uh, from working in those movies which are called Scream, the horror movies, mm-hmm. uh, thriller movies. Um, and uh, she posted her story about Free Palestine. So that's what she mentioned. That's all she mentioned, Free Palestine. And she says that I'm a person who's come from a background of injustice, so I can recognise this, and I want to say that we must stop this from taking place. And for that reason, her contract for the next Scream movie was cancelled, Scream 7. Um, and she again released a statement after this and she simply said that um, all I'm saying is I uh, condemn injustice that's taking place now this is this is Melissa Barrera specifically there's also Bella Hadid Bella Hadid and her sister uh, have been vocal supporters of Palestinians because their grandparents are originally from Palestine um, they, the claim is that her grandfather was actually um, affected by the Nakba, the catastro- catastrophe, mm. where um, th- hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were displaced uh, and had to leave um, Palestine and Israel area. So these people are being criticised. And Bella Hadid has also said that she's lost contracts over her being vocal and speaking up for the rights of Gaza and Palestine. Um, and... Uh, any person who's tried to raise some sort of criticism in regards to this has been labelled as an as, as anti-Semitic, right? So what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I think um, it's really, really interesting um, the perspective uh, people come up with with uh, different um, things that are coming out from the conflict in the Middle East um, and especially uh, the double standards you can see on freedom of speech from people who are outside the conflict zone by us in the Western, Western side and those inside as well who are reporting and how their uh, truth is p- perceived because they take a side or they s- seem to be supporting one side or the other. But Ultimately, what you can see is that uh, because of the double stand that is uh, so blatantly obvious, it's actually created uh, more supporters uh, for uh, sort of uh, Palestine, you can say. Mm. And um, we know that um, uh, during a conflict, there are a lot of um, misinformation and misguidance that are going through. One side is trying to make um, their point across heard, and they may use ill tactic, which is not... Um, very f- uh, not fond at all. Uh, we've seen it throughout history that propaganda has uh, does go out, and um, it can instantly impact people around the world. And there are f- uh, very uh, various examples that have affected and have been called out. And people are starting to realise this, and that is why uh, p- uh, you know strong commentators uh, commentators are saying that um, this conflict has again made people realise. Uh, in the uh, the the topic of misinformation mm. and fake news uh, is starting to boil again, and ultimately, what is actually happening? And if we take uh, in this instance, uh, which is my opinion, is that uh, Israel are the side that are um, sort of uh, coming up with the misinformation with evidence that many. Um, uh, independent media outlets have yeah. um, given examples of they are losing the war of media essentially and people are starting to realize and that is why you're seeing huge rallies around the world um, in support of uh, Palis- uh, Palestinian people and their cause and that just tells you ultimately what you need to know about the conflict at this time and what impact uh, it, it, it's having we can only um, continue to pray yep. uh, for the conflict. Um, you know, you look at the fact that 
yeah fine you can have rallies but we've had rallies and protests throughout the years since whenever uh, this conflict has started since 1948 you can even say right even if you go just recently uh, I don't know how many um, protests there were among them but I'm just using uh, as, a, as the recent history but ultimately prayer is what's going to get us through and that is uh, some things that people are missing out on and uh, I think uh, we need to we need to go back uh, to basic steps which is bowing down to our creator yeah, and as Emily Muslims, uh, we believe that we must speak up against any sort of injustice which is taking place. Like Omar said, as well as uh, prayers, we also try to re- raise funds mm. for those who are suffering. As part of Humanity First, we raised over $600,000. Um, and Ahmadiyya Muslim Youth Association in the UK has raised over £60,000 as well alone. Um, so funding um, uh, prayers and uh, also speaking up uh, against injustice that are taking place. And like Omar, you've said that one of the things that have also been um, eye-opening for people is that large media corporations, which I personally, whenever I see something on BBC News or any of the other big um, channels and stuff like that, I've been um, quite okay or quite uh, accepting of the information they're feeding me. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, right, that, that must be have some level of truth to it or completely mm-hmm. true. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a a reputable media source uh, they, they do fact checking they, they are based around the world etc it's one of the most famous uh, corporations in the world mm. but now people are actually realising that they've made several mistakes in reporting in regards to certain events that have been taking place and also the terminology they use in regards to when they're referring to um, Israelis compared to Palestinians. For example, one of the discrepancies that I showed when an Israeli dies you mentioned killed mm. but when a Palestinian dies it just says, mentions died and these small things do make a difference when it comes to human psychology and people are thinking and seeing the conflict as well. And I was actually, one of the things that I want to bring in here, which we're going to talk about later on as well uh, in the show, is I was out on the streets uh, last weekend. So November has been classed as Islamophobia Awareness Month mm-hmm. in the UK. So I went to Brighton and I was on the streets talking to people, raising awareness about Islamophobia um, and brutal misconception that people have about Islam. And one of the topics that people came up to us and spoke to us about was about the conflict because obviously this is kind of the potent questions and Islam's being brought up in the headlines again mm. and many people were apologizing to us saying that we we were quite impartial or we were uh, not sure on what to say or what to see but th- they were saying that information is so widely available and we're able to see everything happening on our social media accounts right from the ground that we cannot deny the injustice that is taking place and I've never personally spoken about this conflict before because I wasn't sure of the what, what, what the overall um, truth was or the information was. But now I can't stay remain quiet. And they spoke to us about this and we were breaking those barriers. And I think that's very, very important as well. And I, f- I feel like part of the protest is that, to get out on the streets and talk to people and force people into this discussion, even those who say that we don't know what's going on, so we're going to remain quiet about it. Um, but I think that's one of the roles that we as Ahmadi Muslims specifically try to play as well mm. to get into those um, channels whether we are um, meeting and talking to politicians which we, we had held an event the mm. Green which we attended as well mm. in the House of Commons mm-hmm. which was the launch of our Voices for Peace parliamentary launch mm. so Voices for Peace is an initiative started by the Ahmadi Muslim community mm. by the head of the Ahmadi Muslim community Hazrat Mizza Masroor Ahmed may Allah be his helper and the purpose of this is to promote and um 
bolden the voices of those who are speaking for peace and who are trying to create um, solutions which lead us towards peace as well. So we held an event at the parliament and we invited the Palestinian ambassador to the UK, Hossam Zomlot, Sir Ed Davey was there, some other MPs and journalists. And we did the, exactly what we are um, speaking about on the show, which is talking about peaceful solutions and how we can bring about a ceasefire. Mm. Uh, mm. Ironic that at the same time the ceasefire vote was taking place mm. uh, in the parliament that day, and the results of that were quite um, surprising, I'd say. I'll, I'll tell you one incident from that day. I'll go on to your point about you know a news bias later on, because that's a very interesting point as well. But on that day, I made the, the mistake, really, of leaving a little bit early. Mm. Um, there's a bit of time left, and so I thought, you know, let me just go for a quick walk. Um, come back in, you know, whatever. As I was leaving, I gave in my visitor bus and I thought, be fine, I'll, I'll come back after half an hour, it'll be, it'll be all fine and dandy. Came back in and they wouldn't let me in because apparently the event was now closed and yeah. the whole issue trying to get back in, whatever. But beyond that, I, I had a very unique, very weird, almost opportunity of being at the front gates, trying to get in through the main entrance, talking to the police and kind of, you know, getting, telling them I'm, I'm part of this event, I'm a representative of, right. of the community and so on and so forth. And there's 15,000 protesters directly chanting, almost aimed at, I'm right at the front gate, so there's issue the police officers, myself and a couple of, of, of my team members, and that's it really. And a few visitors going in, and MPs going in for the vote, for example. And so it was almost like we were on the receiving end of those 15,000 strong chants, for example. And so I was with the, with the photographer as well, actually, a press photographer, and, and the, some of the shots he got was, were amazing, but you kind of felt the power, literally directly, you felt like you were the centre point of that, of that protest. And it was quite, quite shocking, quite, quite you know, intimidating in, in that sense, and quite powerful, the voices of the people. As a first, I, was, I guess it was a physical representation of what the voices of the people really means. Right. As I was walking, actually, I was wearing, a, I, was, I was kitted out nicely for the first time in a while, and I was wearing a blazer and so on and so forth. And someone stopped me and said, why are you going inside? I must have thought I was an MP because of my, obviously, uh, mature looks. But there were, <laughs> but I was like, like explaining to them quickly as I was going, that I'm going into a part of an event that's arguing for a ceasefire and so on and so forth. Yeah. But... Uh, people that were going in, for example, they the you know, streets were blocked and kind of they were questioning everyone that was going in. And you'd see certain lords and MPs going in, they would boo at them and cheer at them and, and so on and so forth. And so, kind of, like I said, that was just an interesting incident for me because it put into perspective that what does the power of people really mean? And if, for example, I was thinking of Boris Johnson, if people that were actually accountable for the decision, not someone like me, people who actually were making the decisions, if they had to feel that, if they weren't guarded from that, if they were in the public eye, physically in the public eye, mm. how would they feel? Been the receiving end of that, and would that affect the decisions? Is what I was thinking. Yeah. And I think that would be a very key point that we are the protests are happening and these things are happening, but how much are the people that are making the difference at the top? How much are they shielded from this? And that's why the event of Parliament is so important because we are speaking directly to the decision makers, we are speaking to the MPs, yeah. the Lords, and, and so on and so forth, people that make the decisions. Exactly. Um, and so we are able to have more of an impact really than the half million people on the streets <laughs> in London, for example. This, these are exactly the instructions of. Uh, <laughs> His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed, and I've actually I was just reading the Friday sermon of 27th October 2023, and in that he mentions that along with prayers, which Umar has mentioned is our main weapon, uh, everyone should try and create an atmosphere of spreading the message that injustices must be brought to an end. And he specifically said, Ahmadis should try to relay this message to anyone they have connections with. This is true courage, and this is the standard of acting according to the commands of Allah. That when we have the capability of raising our voices and also getting in touch with those uh, who have the capability of making a difference, we should try to use those voices and we should try to reach out. And one of the things that Ahmadis around the country have also done is write letters to the local MPs. And I know letters have been sent out in their hundreds. And I personally received a reply for my letter as well. So that wasn't something out of the um, ordinary, basically. I think one thing I have to say about the protests as well, which you've mentioned, is that um, I was pretty pleased with the... Uh, 
the approach that the Met Police took uh, in regards to not being biased or one-sided and being quite vocal when they disagreed with the what Suella Braverman and what the government was saying about the protesters who took a very, um, let's say, extreme stance to it, which is obviously why she has been removed now as well um, due to the statements she made. Um, and also the way they dealt with the far-right protesters who tried to intervene and affect these protests. Um, but one thing that, that was was a bit weird was the when people say even the slightest of things for example there's the chant which is famously known from river to the sea Palestine will be free mm. which um, people who advocate for that from the Palestinian side obviously they explain um, the meaning behind this as being that uh, not only should uh, the Palestine uh, areas which have been allocated West Bank Gaza be allowed complete autonomy and permission to make their own decisions and freedom but also the Palestinians which live within Israel as was the mandate as was the uh, policy created by UN that every Palestinian lives in Israel should be granted citizenship and equal rights those things should be applied but obviously as a person who is uh, from the opposing side of that sees that as a threat to wipe out completely the existence of Israel and Israelis with that chant um, this is obviously maybe a stance where the government does have a um, point where it might seem as offensive or um, threatening towards Israeli. But other things, for example, I don't know if you saw the poster of that girl who had a, uh, she had a image of uh, Swella Braverman and Rishi Sunak and she drew them as coconuts. Mm-hmm. And uh, We had it. Yeah, so there was a whole discussion about whether that's offensive, not only offensive, but the Met Police were saying that it's potentially a hate crime. Mm. And they were looking for this girl, and I think she was taken. Uh, I think she, no, she she went voluntarily. And yes, obviously. Okay. So they were looking for her. So she yeah. went to the police station, and uh, I don't know what happened after that. And some a lot of people are saying that we'll we'll um, con- contact us with lawyers, and mm. we'll fight your case, or we'll fight for you in this case as well. But uh, I personally know that um, the term coconut is it, within the Asian community, within our community, mm-hmm. is uh, thrown around very lightly, and is mostly said as a joke. Mm. Uh, as someone who has, um, if I, 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 I'm going to give my personal explanation, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know what the definition in the dictionary is, but uh, is someone who um, outwardly is uh, obviously Asian, but uh, they have a lot of tendencies where they uh, have adopted to a Western culture, even in this country we say a British culture, um, and uh, they have adapted more to that compared to what their heritage and what their background is. Um, so they're more kind of let's say Western compared to Pakistani. Mm. Um, there's nothing wrong with this. So it, it was about being a joke. Yeah. Uh, just uh, further on to that topic of uh, freedom of speech and double standard. And you know we sort of been blessed, you can say, with social media mm. where everyone's able to get their news. Everyone is able to get first source, first hand uh, images, videos, uh, posts. Right. And uh, if you use it properly. It's such a huge be- uh, benefit, yep. and but on the contrary, what we've been seeing is that. Let me give you one example of X, formerly known as Twitter. Twitter yeah. um, so there has been, of course, some advertisers who have already pulled out yeah. uh, from uh, Twitter. I want to call it Twitter because X is too hard to say. Oh, and why did they pull out? And uh, that's because of. Um, uh, uh, I believe it's Elon Musk's view yeah. around um, Israel and Palestine conflict. Yeah. They believe that he said certain things which were anti Semitic or he was promoting anti Semitic views on yeah, his platform. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we can see that um, there's already a strong view um, for one side already in here. And if we just take even our own social media uh, into um, c- uh, context, uh, 
you know, if you type a, if you type a word of Palestine in there in your, you know, I don't know hashtags or whatever, mm. uh, you know, you just need to look at the young Imam. He just posted yesterday on his social media about how when he was posting stuff about Palestine, his account was um, his or the Instagram algorithms weren't pushing his post out too much engagement or engagement exactly. And the times he didn't didn't use the mm. the words or specific words in in around Palestine conflict or for Palestine, I guess. The algorithm, the engagement were being pushed out. Mm-hmm. So you can see that there's, there's already a double standard behind the scenes taking place, uh, which is uh, seem might seem very minute to us, but it's huge for the people uh, on the ground because at the end of the day, they want their voices to be heard. And we ultimately want to hear the voices and the truth behind everything because we as the, uh, we as the people outside of the conflict want to, you know, be on the right side of history and at the moment you can see that social media is playing a, a very wrong hand you can say I think it's interesting the point I was going to make earlier <coughs> especially was that double standards is one way of putting it the other way of putting it is that inherently there's there's inherent bias in every uh, news source and you know perhaps we before we said the BBC is a credible source they, you know, they account for this bias to mitigate it and now we're seeing perhaps that is not the case mm. and you know one issue with independent uh, reporting for example is that you're going to see a lot more of that bias and that's what people, some people argue as well on, on the other hand on the other hand uh, you know I think this really, the fact that whether bias is there or not, I think is kind of uh, kind of a given. It's going to be there regardless or not. But it's the BBC on the independent reporting. That's the first thing that has been established. We cannot say that mainstream media is free of bias. Mm-hmm. Second thing is that that means that critical evaluation of sources and critical evaluation of the news that we hear is so, so important. And nowadays people are, you know, are just fed piece of information, are given the conclusions without, having, you know, without going through the, the analysis part of it or the discussion part of it. That is when I think issues arise because people lose the capacity to question what they think almost, and that is something that you know ironically has been, you know, kind of by by the Western culture and kind of has been kind of pushed a lot, especially with the rise of atheism, which you know which says question everything, don't believe everything. Yeah. The fact we're seeing now on a on a certain level, people's conscious level, people do actually believe everything yeah. and do believe what they're told. Exactly, and we can come back to this, um, which becomes criticism of. Um, the systems that we create in the society, specifically in regards to liberalism and mm. individual freedom, mm. and we will discuss how that's. Uh, we'll come back to that when we discuss about Islamophobia mm-hmm. and anti-Semitism. Mm. But before that, we're going to take a short break, and we're going to come back and discuss a bit around COP28, and then we'll come back to this topic um, and talk about some of our um, wider things that we wanted to speak about. Allah. Allah. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Selections from the writings of the Promised Messiah, upon whom be peace, the founder of the Ahmadiyya movement in Islam. Take note how the Holy Prophet of Islam remained resolute and steadfast in his claim to prophethood from beginning to end, in the face of thousands of dangers and a multitude of enemies and threatening opponents. For years on end, he endures such hardship and suffering as increased from day to day, enough to make one despair of success. 
It is inconceivable for a man with worldly motives to have shown such prolonged endurance and steadfastness. Not only that, by putting forth his claim to prophethood, he even lost the support he had previously enjoyed. The price he had to pay for his one claim was to confront a hundred thousand contentions and invite a multitude of calamities to befall upon his head. He was exiled from his homeland, pursued with intent to murder. His home and belongings were destroyed. Several attempts on his life were made by poisoning. Those who were his well-wishers began to harbour ill for him. Friends turned into foes. For an age which seemed eternity, he braved such hardships, which are beyond a pretender and impostor to suffer through. Al-Qadr The Powerful The One who has both power and authority over all His creatures. It is Allah who created you in a state of weakness and after weakness gave strength, then after strength caused weakness and old age. He creates what He pleases. He is the All-Knowing, the All-Powerful. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May the peace and blessings of God be upon you all on this Saturday morning slash afternoon. It's again up to afternoon now. I'm your host, Rahan Chima, and today you're joined by Malik Takareem Ahmed and Umar Bhatti in the studio. Um, and we've had our discussion already. We've spoken about various news stories in regards to current policies of our of the British government and also previous ones. And also we've been talking about the implications uh, of the Palestine-Israel conflict in regards to the double standards that we're seeing in media, um, the benefit of information and uh, the harm of misinformation that we're seeing. Um, and now we also want to do, kind of take a detour and discuss something else which is going on right now which is the COP28 that's currently taking place in Dubai. And I believe um, there are all over 130 countries being represented right now at COP28. I know you've, a lot of you have probably heard about it in the past. Um, that is t- they try to take this takes place on an annual basis uh, whenever possible. Um, and uh, we want to talk about some of the things that are being discussed this year. What are the future plans and what are the different leaders also saying? So, Takreem, what have you got? Well, it seems to me, it must have been a year ago 
but it seems to be less than that when we sat here talking about COP27. Yeah. And uh, Hamad, Hamad was in the was in the studio, and we were talking about you know will this make a difference? Will we actually go towards head towards climate change? And a year on, you know, a year of just stop oil protests, a year of you know the cobalt mining crisis, um, a year of getting out of the recovery from COVID, heading towards economic doom and gloom post COVID and so on and so forth, and the importance of climate change in the world, seeing public attitudes change, change towards it, the rise and fall of Greta Thunberg, for example, mm. all these things, I think, are, are kind of, uh, you know, items to reflect on. Um, and so it was very, you know, it was very interesting to me that COP28, you know, is just around the corner now, it's happening again, for two reasons. Firstly, you know, we went to have a guest on today. Um, uh, unfortunately, we're attending issues, either he'll be on in the next show, hopefully, inshallah. And kind of it's interesting to see from delegates point of view and he was lucky enough to be in the blue zone which is where the presidents and kind of the key policy makers of COP28 kind of sit down and discuss and, and kind of uh, kind of uh, talk about policies so watch out for that in our next show in four weeks time if you are listening um, to to hear more about feedback and kind of takeaways from that and secondly because I've just as part of my again my masters this year um, apologies for bringing it up again but we are doing I'm doing a short um, one of the modules is actually a, a consultancy um, a four f- I think six month long consultancy and paid with uh, an international organisation some of my friends are doing it with the UNRWA the Refugee Agency some are doing it with the WHO I'm doing it with CBM which is called the Christian Blind Mission and specifically looking at the intersection of climate change disability and health so actually some of the research that was done last year is being presented at COP28 so some of the research that you know the same consultant group did last year has been taken by the by the, the organisation has been presented at COP28 this year on how is climate change affecting health and specifically how does it affect people with disabilities? Does it affect their access to care? Does it affect um, you know does it affect how they get care? Does it affect kind of what kind of care they get? Where they get care? Um, when they get care? All these kind of things. Um, are they? Is there more inequality because of it? Less inequality and so on and so forth. Um, so really, I think for me personally. The COP28 has a lot more significance and kind of has a lot more meaning this year. I was sat here last year thinking climate change is all well and good, but what does it affect me? It might affect me in 20 years' time. Mm. And I knew of the, of the importance of it. I just didn't know how to relate that to me personally. Um, whereas now, I think after this whole year of, of you know, walking to a campus on, on the bridge and half an hour ago, just stop while I've locked off the bridge, for example, and seeing that in action, for example, that has kind of brought it home to me personally. And that might be the most key takeaway, the most difference I've seen is that it's now hitting home personally. When your commute is, is you know, is being stopped by protesters, you know, when you are realising from my education that climate change has a massive impact on health and disabilities. We saw the floods in Pakistan, now that might have brought it home for a lot of Pakistanis, for example. Yeah, there's been a lot of uh, climate events this year which exactly. are being discussed um, exactly. at the, at the, at the um, symposium. Exactly, right. And so that kind of thing, I think, brought it home to my parents, for example. They were like... Why is this flood happening? And this is a point to say that look, this is what climate change is. This is what global, say global warming. But you can see how this is how the climate is changing. There's going to be more of these severe extreme weather events, as we call them, and so on and so forth. But that was my my personal take. I'm I'm sure you can give more of a yeah yeah. So, so we, we, if we go through, I think one thing what we like you mentioned, we we've discussed many times in the past about mm. the different cops that have taken place. So obviously, COP28. This is the 28th one that's happening. Mm. That's happened so far. One thing that would be interesting to see is to analyze what we discussed in the first couple. Let's say the first five or so and whether those policies and things that were discussed have been implemented and whether we achieved those targets. I think that would be a good way to assess um, our progress and whether mm. those are beneficial. But speaking about COP28 specifically, um, it's a bit early days, so it only started on Friday, and I think it's going on for two weeks. It's going to happen until 12th of December. And like I mentioned, we have over 200 nations, actually, which are going to be represented across the uh, um, two weeks. 
Um, and the COP stands for the Conference of the Parties, and the parties are those that signed up to the original UN Climate Agreement in 1992, which is when the first COP took place. Now, one of the criticisms that have been taking place currently is the location of where this is taking place, mm. which is Dubai. Mm-hmm. Um, and the UAE is known as one of the top 10 oil producers in the world. I just saw this morning, actually, just got you off there, that the UAE is actually increasing its oil production. Exactly. Which I thought was very funny. The, on the way person here. who's actually sponsoring and who's leading on this is called Sultan Al-Jabr, who's, um, who runs, who's the chief executive of a state-owned oil company. Mm. And he's recently, or he's over time, he's made plans to expand production capacity for uh, oil, like gas and coal, um, or any fossil fuels. Um, And this is within his country and outside as well. Um, So people are arguing that how does that make sense for him to be the president and to run um, the the, uh, meeting itself when he is the one who's actually contributing. Uh, towards this as well but I think there's the two sides to see this um, these are exactly the players you should try to bring to these discussions because if you believe that they are the most heavy or biggest contributors then they're the people you need to sit down at a table and discuss with it won't benefit you alone to discuss with those who all agree with you who all hold the same understanding with you the same goals as you when you're challenging the people and they're outside um, so I think that's also important so so um one of the things that COP28 is trying to achieve uh, is to keep alive the goal of limiting long-term global temperature rises to 1.5 degrees in total. So this was a goal that they made in Paris in uh, 2015. So they're trying to make sure that, trying to see whether they're still on track or what changes do they need to make towards this. And the UK has been criticised, as always. When has the UK not been criticised? Mm. Um because a lot of the other countries or the players uh, feel that UK are not putting enough importance into this and climate change has kind of gone um, off their priority list. But Rishi Sunak has given guarantee or has given assurance that UK has still uh, got these targets that have been set at COP or their own personal climate change targets at the top of their priority list and they are still trying to achieve them. Yeah, sorry to come in... um one of the things that the COP28 has agreed on um, is the Climate Disaster Fund, um, which is mm-hmm. quite interesting uh, concept for me to look at. But it essentially is a creation of a loss and damage fund to help poorer countries mm-hmm. with the impacts of uh, climate change, and which is, of course, largely fueled by the richer countries using a lot of fossil fuels. And they, of course, have a larger proportion of use of fossil fuel compared to the ones who are smaller and poorer. Um the poorer countries requested um said that they needed 100 billion uh, dollars um but they've only been able to uh, promise 700 million dollars at this moment um so it's a bit um uh, it'll be interesting to see what uh, impact this f- fund or pot has uh, because we always hear that uh, you know one of the um uh, comments that we hear, negative comments that we hear once things start to turn bad is that this is how much we ask for and this is how much we got. What are you, what are we expected to do? So in this situation, they only got 700 million out of the 100 billion they have requested. What will happen? I don't know. We will just have to find out uh, this, the impact. I think I mean, 0.7% if my calculation is correct, getting of what you requested is not, not, not great to be honest. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I think it's very important. You mentioned interesting you mentioned that um, 
thinking about funding and where funding comes from is a very key point as well. One of the biggest criticisms of the UN or WHO is that, the WHO especially, is that their health fund, for example, or the way they fund various campaigns, the US is one of the biggest donors. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, I don't know if you know, is actually, I think, the third largest donor or second largest donor to the WHO fund. I can't remember exactly which one. Mm-hmm. And so naturally, their kind of aims and biases kind of, uh, you know, shape the direction of the, the, the campaigns of the WHO and kind of their priorities almost. And that's a big criticism. The need for an independent kind of fund, independent kind of uh, kind of people to, to work there um, or head that organization. And so this fund, you know, the concerns would be that we're developing this fund, but again, is this another way of Western powers using money, using their kind of monetary power to, again, affect some sort of control over poorer nations global south, of the, over the global south? So one said that if you want to know where the real power, the real influence lies, follow the money trail. Where's money coming from? It's a very simple fact that if you're getting money from one source, they have kind of power to shape your policies and shape your um, economy, not an economy, shape your political stance, shape mm. you know your military stance and so on and so forth. And so there is that need for an independent organisation almost. This is something that we have covered in many lectures, for example, and, and many seminars. We'll come, always come back to the fact that politically, economically, you know, we need some sort of independent organisation, which the UN was meant to be. But we can say that you know, the UN is, is failing right now and the UN's bodies are, you know, in my opinion, for example, are failing right now. And so, again, you you mentioned you mentioned independence as well. I think earlier having independent parties involved. Yeah. And again, like, for example, having, you know, the head, the CEO of an oil company leading a climate change conference, you know, that might seem weird, it might seem odd. And I agree with the need for different voices, but at the same time, where can we look to for an independent person? Where is the independent body in the well, world right I, now? I think the independent bodies do exist. And the people, the organization who is running this corporation is the UN. So UN is supposed to be an independent body in this. But we often see that UN um, have, has kind of lost their reliability as well. It has. And the credibility. So not many people have that trust in the UN to make impartial decisions or choose the side of truth. Right. Yeah. And uh, well, it's uh, yeah. Ultimately, you know, it's uh, talking from a, a, p- a political perspective. It's hard for an international body to uh, be uh, because we talk when we talk about uh, international bodies and sovereign nations. Mm-hmm. It's hard for an unelected official, you can say, or unelected bodies, which comes back to sort of the EU debate as well. But international body, which of course was. Everyone was in agreement that we need it. We need this, but effectively, it has become ineffective because ultimately, we see that it doesn't implement uh, what it says, and that's because of the political powers in place. Uh, you know, in the Security Council, we know that if we've got five member nations that have got veto. Why is that? Why do we need a veto? Because what you're going to see is behind the scenes, the veto power nations with their allies are just going to pressure other nations to um, sort of vote with them or just abstain. So you can't create ultimate justice uh, from that or you can't have, you know, uh, justice without uh, you can't have pe- justice or you won't be able to have peace because you, you you've you've taken away that uh, power of justice 
by introducing the veto. Yeah, so the power's in, in a couple of countries or a couple... Um, Five, yeah. yeah, so that's China, France. Russia, France, uh, UK and US. US yeah. yeah, I think that's be, uh, we're seeing that not only in terms of um, policies in regards to what we're discussing right now, but also a conf- lot of conflict as well, um, of, of the power of being able to make decisions, everyone else has to agree with that. So uh, a body like the UN is not based then on democracy, and uh, it doesn't matter how many member states it tries to incorporate into that, Mm. Uh, when certain people can just make all the final decisions when yeah. it comes to that, and I think one thing uh, we can we can probably one thing to mention just to finish off with the COP twenty eight discussion as well mm. is that uh, obviously the Paris uh, targets is one of the main points um, because we are currently predicted to be off targets. So instead of a one point five uh, increase, it's predicted according to recent estimates that by Two thousand one hundred. Two thousand one hundred. Wow. Yeah, we'll have warming of around two point four to oh, two point wow. seven okay, degrees so Celsius increase well on average. Well, out of the target. Um, so the UN says that target or the ability to reach that target is narrowing every day, obviously, because the changes we make now will obviously we'll see the results of that. Well, unfortunately, it doesn't matter because we're getting closer to a world war. So, yeah. what can you do about this? Yeah, so that's that's another thing. Just to dampen the mood. Those people who really care about the climate should also really care about the war. Co- conflicts, yeah. Conflicts, because um, one thing that's not discussed enough is the effect on the environment yeah. of uh, modern-day warfare. Exactly. Um, and other targets, which apart from the Paris ones, like I mentioned, was... Sorry, just to cut, you, cut in again. It's just uh, obsolete, this sort of conversation that the big powers or the big countries are coming in. Mm. They're the ones who are sort of supplying warfare to other nations. And then they're coming and saying, yeah, we'll try and reduce it. But in effect, they're actually helping it by launching, you know, these warfare weapons, providing them. So... In effect, they're just being hypocrites. Hypocrites, yeah. And what we discussed as earlier on the show as well in the news round was that some people had the ability to harness the powers, mm. so uh, made the use of fire. That's the industrial revolution, mm-hmm. re- revolution, mm. um, uh, and uh, weapons and all that kind of stuff. Once they realised the harmful effects, they're now dictating other countries what they should be doing. Mm. When there's a lot of third world countries which never even had the ability to harness fossil fuels for their benefit and they've never been able to progress and come to that stage because they like the cream was mentioned earlier they're now a position where they are oh. going through an industrial revolution a lot of nations mm. right china have only achieved this very, very recently but they've mm. progressed so quickly yeah compared to how long it took us in the west actually it's interesting when i went to japan i had to stay over i had to stay over well layover at china mm-hmm. and i was actually really interested to see whether china did have really bad um, air mm. uh, just as we were landing the whole sort of you couldn't see out of the window it was uh, it, the, the, the air was just disgusting <laughs> it was just full of all these uh, whatever pollution uh, you had and the whole plane was just dirty yeah. and the air itself outside was just all hazy and dirty so it was just so interesting to see and I just had to mention that point from one of my trip yeah mm-hmm. I think the, 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 the I personally think the fault there is um, short sightedness we live the way we live in the West is that we look at our short-term benefit. We want to we want everything quick, but we don't look at what impact it will have for future generations, um, and I think that comes from a lack of morality as well. But that's also because we're not willing to wait that long either. We're not willing to wait we, that long because of the tr- uh, transformation of technology has made everything so much quicker. We've yeah. become a global world. We want everything. You know, we have next day delivery right now. Yeah. Right. 
why would we wait four or five days for that delivery when we have the option for next day delivery? Yeah. So, but like the, the that's discussion just, still that's, comes in. Yeah. We don't. We think about benefit for us right now. Exactly. That's We're just not think about the benefit, the harm which is going to cause the future. Exactly. And on one of the things that I always bring into this example as well was the normalization of drugs in the 70s and 80s in regards to LSD, uh, psychedelics, and mm-hmm. mar- uh, cannabis, marijuana as well, weed basically. And the fact that it was seen as a harmless thing and it started mm-hmm. being adopted into society back then. Mm without the implications that will happen in the future. Mm-hmm. Now we're seeing, due to the adoption of uh, lesser harmful drugs, we're now seeing a epidemic even, of some sort of uh, harmful Class A drugs and how these have been normalised, not only amongst the poor in society, but also the affluent and the wealthy in society, mm-hmm. who do this as a thing of um, recreation. Leisure. Yeah, yeah, leisure. Even vaping, I'm, I'm a big proponent of against vaping because the studies that are just coming out now... I hope you do. <laughs> the series that is coming out now um, are showing that simply because it's so new, we don't have that data. A lot of research requires you know ten, twenty years worth of data. Yeah, I'm coming up to exactly. to limit now, and the early ones are saying you know the risk of throat cancer, lung cancer is massively increased. And mm. bear in mind, I remember I was younger. I used to actually. It sounds bad in oh, retrospect. No. When I was younger, I, you guys in like 10, 10 12 years old, <laughs> I used to go into a GP pharmacy and I'd see kind of, it was advertised, right? Yeah. So nicotine, I didn't even know what nicotine was at the point. I didn't yeah. even know it was cigarettes. I thought this is so cool. You can yeah. like blow into it and you get smoke out of it, right? I, I didn't even thought it was a cool thing, right? So you can say societal impact, whatever, right? Yeah. And I just remember it very, very vividly in, I asked my mum for it once and to be fair, she didn't know where it was either. So she, she was like, she just ignored me, um, as was the case. Um, and she, and, and I was like, I just remember it being marketed as a safe alternative to oh. to cigarettes, right? To stopping smoking. Right, right, yeah. And the NHS itself was pushing as a safe, safe alternative. And now actually saying, actually, it's not safe at all, really. The stuff that is in there, the the stuff that's mixed with it, it's ridiculously dangerous. You're, you're smoking a battery almost, right? Um, and all these things. So I think just like the tobacco industry took a long time to kind of realise the effects of it, we are we are slowly coming to realise the bad effects of, for example, tobacco, weed, a lot of these things, for example. Again, it links back to my early point about critical evaluation. People don't actually, uh, you might read, uh, for example, a news article or whatever, but if you want to look at something in terms of science, for example, you want to look at peer-reviewed critical literature, critical analysis, someone who's unbiased, for example, or, or done analysis to take the bias out of it, for example, look at data, you can see exactly how many cases happen with a non-smoker, smoker, so on and so forth, all these kind of things. Nerve damage is a big thing as well. Yeah. But yeah. So uh, smoking is also another thing which which was very normalised. Mm. Well, well, harms were known. Mm. But due to uh, our governments or our uh, policies working in a way where we grant individual liberty and freedom, we let the public make decisions on what they want and what they do not want to do. But I think the state needs to come at some point and make those decisions where it thinks about the future, like you mentioned, what the impacts are going to be 30, 40 years in advance, and then it tries to implement those. Um, we've seen that in many cases. Well, one thing that China obviously then adopted was the one-child policy which significantly reduced their birth rates and it did reduce the population increase which has taken place. Now they're struggling and the opposite has happened and now they're trying to um, uh, promote and actually pay parents to have more than one child because people have become so used to it and they can only afford to have one child or afford that lifestyle or enjoy that lifestyle having one child that uh, they do not want to have more than that. But China's now saying they're paying the parents saying that if you have more than one child we'll pay you this much money. Mm. So you have to. I think there needs to be a balance there of trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong. Um, and I think that there's a, there's a big discussion around this as well. I think what, one thing I was just trying to mention was that the short sightedness is a, is a lack of morality. That we think about what benefits us, uh, I personally, not even us, um, but not about the collective we. 
um, those around us and also in the future, our future um, people. I think this comes into morality as well. C- closing off with the COP28 discussion, um, I think some of the other things that are being mentioned is that uh, we want to slash greenhouse gases emissions before 2030. And I think we've heard this mentioned so many times, this target of 2030. But again, the president who's leading here, Mr. Jabbar, has mentioned that he does not want to completely get rid of fossil fuels. He wants to slowly reduce the use of fossil fuels, but he wants to, it to continue because he believes that as we're still finding resources of fossil fuels around the world, um, he believes these are still usable. And it's not the case that we have completely run out now using our last reserves. We do keep finding more reserves of coal, coal oil, fossil fuels, gas, etc. Um, but he says we just need to find a more sustainable way of harnessing and using them. Right, slowly over time, and adopt green uh, renewable sources as well at the same time. And uh, the next one is delivering money for climate action, which Umar mentioned earlier. And this is supposed to go from richer to poorer mm-hmm. countries, but let's see how much um, this is applied and worked on. Third one is focusing on nature and people. Um, and the last one, making COP28 and these discussions more inclusive. Now, what I get from that is... Um, Just listen to speeches and that's it. <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping what this means is incorporation of the nations that are being affected more mm. by climate change um, and listening to what they want and how they want to do it rather than us, well, by us I mean the West, uh, Europe, um, and the other nations who have the ability to or power to speak up um, are dictating all their policies and, and their rules for them. Or we're all telling them that they should use fossil fuels like this and they should make these, these kind of mitigations and they don't have a choice apart from that. Mm. So I think it needs to have a collective um, involvement there. And like I said, it will be unfair for us to have caused the harm, us to have made all the decisions and uh, people just have to live along, go along with this. Um but yeah, I think I'm hoping we'll get a good turnaround from this. Um, and uh, I think discussions will have to carry on after uh, COP28 concludes, which will be on the uh, 11th of December. So we've still got about two weeks of discussion, 12th of December. <clears throat> so we've still got a bit of discussion to take place. And this year, the keynote speaker, the opening session was actually King Charles, who travelled out to Dubai. Um, and he... he he kind of urged on and discussed the importance of these implementations and the responsibility that the people who are representing the nations at COP28 have uh, and hoping that those um, they live up to the expectations that they have, but people, the public have from them. But uh, let's take a short break and let's come back to our topic in regards to what we were speaking about before, which was um, the impact implications of the Palestine-Israel conflict and what we're seeing happening in the UK in regards to that. Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمدًا 
You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Selections from the writings of the Promised Messiah, upon whom be peace, the founder of the Ahmadiyya movement in Islam. I look always with wonder at this Arab prophet, whose name is Muhammad. Thousands of blessings and peace be upon him. How exalted his status was. One cannot perceive the ultimate limit of his station, and it is not within the scope of man to fully comprehend the depth and penetration of his ennobling qualities. Alas, due recognition has not been paid to his lofty rank. That unity which had disappeared from the world was restored by this same valiant champion. He loved God most intensely. So also his soul was being consumed in deep sympathy for mankind. That is why God, who was fully aware of the hidden excellences of his heart, exalted him above all the prophets and all the people of the past and the future and fulfilled his heart's desires in the span of his lifetime. Writings of the Promised Messiah, salam. The time is approaching when God will grant worldwide popularity to this movement and this dispensation will spread in the East and the West and the North and the South, and in the world, Islam and this movement will become synonymous terms. This is a revelation from God on high, for whom nothing is impossible. You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Uh, coming back from a short break, uh, you're joining us on Saturday Morning Live. I'm your host, Rohan Lachima, and I'm joined by uh, Umar Bhatti and Malik Takreem Ahmed in the studio today. And we've had several discussions so far. Uh, so we did our usual news round, and uh, we spoke about some of the injustices and double standards that we're seeing in regards to the Israel and Palestine conflict, which we're going to continue now. And we've also had a discussion around COP28, um, being the opening weekend of COP28 that's taking place in Dubai. Um, and hopefully we'll have a follow-up discussion on that as well once that's been completed. Um, coming back to our discussion earlier which was in regards to double standards. And one of the things we were mentioning was the role of the media, of being impartial and being given accurate information. And also, um, what were the double standards in regards to freedom of speech as well. That we're seeing certain people are being ostracised, uh, social media are censoring content. Um, and I've personally seen this when it comes to, especially to um, TikTok and Instagram. TikTok, I've seen that you post a video specifically in regards to this conflict and it'll hardly get 50, 60 views when usually you might get views in a thousand or two thousand or even something like that or even greater than that. Or content being completely removed. Our friends who are trying to post about content and trying to raise awareness in regards to the current conflict and their videos get removed by um, TikTok immediately within 20 minutes. So that's one of the challenges that we're seeing right now, but also something that's really opening up the minds of people. One of the things that we wanted to discuss around was the um, impact that this conflict is having on other countries as well, what we're seeing. So obviously this discourse is taken around the world, it's taking place around the world. 
And as the cream you mentioned earlier, we're seeing people come up onto the streets um, in the hundreds of thousands, which means that it's be affecting everyone here as well. Everyone's seen that, and it's become part of our political discourse and discussion now as well. What's permitted, what's not permitted, um, and what stance should the UK take, the US take in regards to this as well. But another thing, one of the harmful impacts we're seeing from the current conflict is the rise of Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. Uh, and this is specifically to London itself. So the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, he spoke um, about this as well recently uh, on Twitter. He condemned that the rise of Islamophobia and anti-Semitism which is taking place. And uh, the police have mentioned that in the London itself alone, um, amidst growing tensions, there have been 218 anti-Semitic offences between just October 1st and 18th. So within 17, 18 days. Compared to 15 in that same period in 2022. So almost 200 more cases have taken the same place in the same period. Islamophobic offences have uh, were at 101 which had taken place in that same period, and they were around 40 around that same period last year. So we're, we're seeing a um, double, triple, or even more than that increase in the in the hate crimes or the offences that are taking place in regards to this. Um, and I think I want to talk about what, why that is. Um, I think one of the things that I've attributed right now is the conflict has taken place is between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Obviously, there's two main faith groups which stand out, which are Jews and Muslims. So people generally believe that this is a religious conflict between Muslims and Jews, and the ultimate reason is this, which I personally disagree with. Um, I know we don't want to go into uh, kind of the historical roots or the purposes behind the conflict or why it's taking place, but a lot of it is, is it's more of a uh, political um, conflict as far as we see uh, and in regards to land territory. Um, but people are obviously going to always paint it as that way, meaning that if that's a different faith, that's a different faith. It's, it's a clash of culture and civilization taking place, and that's why the conflict is taking place. But it's really upsetting to see that this is coming and taking place on our country. And as a Muslim personally, I believe that it's uh, upsetting that Jewish people on the streets of London are having to face such discrimination and hate from people simply because of their identity. It's also false to ascribe fault to anyone who comes from a Jewish background or anyone who comes from Israel. We don't particularly have this carpet blame, there's a there's an overarching blame um, put on an entire nation simply because of certain individuals. And this is a conversation that Muslims have been having for years when it comes to labelling us as uh, terrorists or extremists, is that the in, um, acts of certain individuals do not paint uh, the whole two billion Muslim population around the world in, in the same way. Um, so, so that's that's something that needs to be eradicated. And I think earlier in the show, I mentioned in regards to that we went to Brighton. Mm. The reason I mentioned that before was mm. I wanted to bring this into this topic. While we had people coming up to us and saying that they are, they've noticed that this is taking place and they are very upset by it happening. We also had the opposite as well. Mm. We had two or three members of public who walked past us, and who actually, um, well, one of them straight up swore up my face. Mm. <laughs> Um, he said uh, he, he said um, some some profanity, uh, and uh, he was very um, let's just say rude and, and doesn't not open to discussions. And this happened two or three times. Mm. So I want to say that such individuals are also exist on our streets, and will also take um, 
opposing our views. But mm. one thing you notice about these people is they'll never have an open conversation. Mm. And our point of going on the streets was to find this out. When a person said that uh, Islam is not a religion of peace, look what you're doing around the world here and there. Well, okay, let's talk about this. But they used to walk off. Mm. So what do you guys think in regards to that? What's the kind of solution to that? Uh, this is a very serious topic, but if I could interject a little bit of um, <laughs> nuance into it. I, uh, a friend of mine, actually, um, was doing a bit of research, well, informal research, he called it. His, and his methodology was, was, quite, um, was quite unrigorous and kind of uh, not scientific in this sense. He used to go on TikTok Live, basically. <laughs> and to various creators, uh, he used to just copy and paste the simple question of thoughts on Israel-Palestine, question mark. And so, kind of, you relay back to me um, what the responses were. And it's quite interesting. So he's saying in terms of demographic, you know, of course, people that are Arab or Muslim nature, straight away, free Palestine, etc., whatever. And the, a lot of people that were, let's say, more social content creators or makeup artists, for example, or kind of singers or kind of, you know, people that are more, more British background, you can say, for example, their response wasn't free Palestine and free Israel, barring a few exceptions, actually. Um, the younger ones were, were more aware of this, but their sudden response was, oh, I don't know, I don't get into politics, I don't know too much about this, mm. or, yeah, let's not, let's stick to it, I don't talk about politics on here. And so it was that, it was that kind of, uh, for he took from it, it was that people are either not educated enough, or their education is very limited to the fact that it's a political issue, and not the fact that it's, in a, it's a humanitarian situation, for example. Mm. You know, not to make direct comparisons, and this is in no way equitable, but, when, for example, the Holocaust, Holocaust was going on afterwards, we are taught by the Holocaust as a key part of history because the effects of it affect us. It, you know, it shows that how what happens when a whole country is misinformed, yeah. misled, and a whole generation, a whole you know, group within a nation is ostracized and treated so horrifically and so wrongly. Yeah, I agree. And we we, we taught, should look at past events to learn from. We are taught to, to, be le- to learn from them. But we are not applying those same lessons, that same kind of evaluation to, to the current day in the world. Yep. And instead we are dismissing conflicts as, oh, it's a political conflict, it's just a war. Yep. And instead we're not looking at the fact that, you know, it's a genocide. Is ways at the end of the day, for example, my opinion, my as a, opinion. As a humanitarian principle, anyways, we believe that it shouldn't differ on what purpose of the war is. Exactly. As long as injustice is taking place, we should speak up against that. Mm-hmm. And if you do claim to be a humanitarian or mm-hmm. anyone who speaks up against injustice, mm-hmm. then that should take place. Again. You should speak up for reg- rights of any people, regardless mm-hmm. of what color, creed, race, mm-hmm. uh, women, men, uh, Muslim, non Muslim, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. We should still speak up for that. I think the key point from his, his research, we can call it, is that people are not giving this as much attention as, as they should be. Mm. Especially people from those who are not personally inter- invested, which, which kind of makes sense, I suppose. But again, it's uh, it's the way it's portrayed in the media, the way it's portrayed as a political conflict, it's those inherent biases, it's the way people evaluate sources, evaluate newspapers, yep. things that people even care about. People just don't care about the fact that there's thousands of people being killed for no just reason yep. whatsoever in, in part of the world that is so far away because it doesn't affect them apparently yet those very principles that are causing that to be affected those, those very reasons why this is taking place are core values and, and core values for us as Britons for example that we need to have a look at and think that our values are being eradicated our values are being going against and our our name is being tarnished in, in, in our principles being tarnished across the world and are we willing to be part of that or not is the key question yeah I think that's very important I think in, in regards to the rise of Islamophobia, um, I, I'm sure most of us have personally seen or known people who have been affected by it, um, by Islamophobic attacks or just, uh, uh, certain remarks being made, which which even have a tinge of discrimination in it. I think this is very normal to face. But I think what's upsetting is that when I was in that situation, that person said to me, I didn't think, wow, this is this is horrible. I thought, right, this happens. Mm. This is bound to happen. Mm. 
and it, it didn't affect me in that case. I didn't, it didn't upset me that he upset he, that he said that. It upset me that it's become normalized and that I'm supposed to feel that, okay, this is normal towards me. Now I am obliged to respond in some way and try to defend myself and my faith. But I think that shouldn't be the case. It wasn't until I reflected afterwards and being like, this, is, this, is, this shouldn't even be happening on our mm. streets. Mm. I mean, it's not rude to you normally. It's, it's out of pocket, for example. So why is it so normalized, I guess, is, is the question. But in terms of Islamophobia and anti-Semitism, very interestingly, um, on Monday, there is a town hall meeting with the King's College London faculty. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've invited all faith societies and some cultural societies, I believe, to a town hall meeting, which is a sit-down with the faculty and discuss an important topic. And... The Ahmadi Muslim Student Association, which I am honoured to be part of, have been invited to, to part, as part of the sit-down, along with the Islamic Society and the Shia Society and some of the cultural societies, to talk about the Palestine issue and whether or not you know King's College London will release a statement on this, what kind of action they're taking on this, mm. so on and so forth. There's a few incidents that happened. Um, I don't want to name all of them, but for example, the, the Medical Student Association released a statement on Israel Palestine and was forced to withdraw it by the, the, the university. Um, due to not being impartial, although having read the statement is fairly impartial in my opinion, for example. Um, so essentially, there's there was kind of a restriction on the freedom of speech already, and so this talk is and actually a member of the Ahmadi Muslim community drafting the first um, draft of this potential statement to be released by the university. Um, so it's a, you know it's, it's a great thing for for us to be part of, but more importantly, it shows that there's now there is now a a change in the direction. People are now recognizing this is something that young people are passionate about. Everyone is passionate, and they should be passionate, passionate about to raise the fact that again, this is not a political thing. This is not just this is not just political, uh, you know, act. This is not just a political conflict. This is a humanitarian disaster, mm. and that is can the shift of, is, is happening. And that's one I never thought protest would work. For example, but mm. we saw the fact that you know Russell Reverman was sacked a couple of days afterwards, not directly because of the protest, but because of her response to the protest and so yep. on and so forth. Right? One, one could argue. So I think to some extent the shift in public perception is changing at the high levels. The fact that even willing to have this sit down and have this meeting about whether or not to release the draft is a positive step in that direction. Anyway, they're acknowledging that. This rise in Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, which is why, interestingly, they're bringing the faith societies on board. Mm. You think it's a little conflict. Why are the faith societies being bring, being brought on board? Well, actually, because it's they're, they're involved as well very heavily in this. We cannot deny the fact that the majority of Israelis, for example, are Jewish, or, and the majority of Palestinians are Christian, are, are Muslims, and so it's turning into this ethno-religious um, conflict as well. Um, and so I think on that Islamophobia and anti-Semitism in universities, definitely there was a there was a, a gap, a discrepancy between. The university faculty and their opinions and their and the university approach, and then the the the, the student approach as well. King's College London itself, for example, holds many investments into Israeli uh, investment companies and com- and so on and so forth, etc. People highlighting this and bringing it to the fore, saying that financially it's backed by you know Israeli companies, etc., etc. That's one argument being used, whether it's true or not, or the way that affects their judgment or noise is a different matter, hmm. um, which we can't we can't talk about that. We we can't really s- speak on that, but. My point is that now they are acknowledging that the students' opinions do count, and therefore perhaps they should change their opinion or they should change their stance on on of impartiality. According to that as well, one one last one one thing as well is that uh, an alumni of King's College London Medical School was killed actually recently in the Palestinian attack, and there was a lot of there's a memorial for him, etc. And really, it's bringing home to the fact that this conflict not just a thousand miles away or ten thousand miles away; it's actually much closer to home than we than we think. Yeah. I think academic institutions are a good discussion. And one of the things that I wanted to mention earlier about I forgot was that 
what we're seeing within academic institutions is the these are the, these are institutions where you have the ability to voice your concerns and where these discussions should be taking place. It's very difficult for us to do this when it comes to workplaces because those are spheres or uh, communities where normally political discussions take place or are encouraged even in the workplace because a lot of uh, corp- managers or corporations think that it affects the environment and uh, everyone's at the atmosphere. But academic institutions have been created for that purpose from the start, where young minds come together and discuss uh, what's happening around us in society and come to a conclusion or debate and discuss that. And the modern day, due to certain, uh, like I said, we discussed about secular and liberal society, is that we're seeing the um, the censorship of uh, voices within academic institutions. Um, and I think this is really harmful because I believe academic institutions should be places or environments where we seek the truth mm. and discussions should be based on that. And we shouldn't be restricted at what is politically correct or not to say. Now, there's a big difference between, in my opinion, when you criticise or you discuss a thing which you believe in compared to being offensive, mm. right? I believe you should have the right to criticise. I believe you should have the right to debate a thing which you disagree with as long as you're not causing offence to that person. If that person is saying you're offending me with certain things you're saying... Um, then there should be boundaries established. But it shouldn't be the case where you tell me um, I don't believe in Islam and these are the reasons and I go complain now or oh, this is offensive. You shouldn't allow this person mm. to speak. Uh, cancel culture comes in, uh, kick him out of the university, etc. I'm, I'm completely against these things because like I said, it, does, it, it takes us away from a collective responsibility yeah. of converse and discourse of coming towards the truth. I think as well that uh, that's a very interesting point and I think that kind of goes into the question of at one point does complaining against Zionism or arguing against Zionism turn into anti-Semitism I think that's a very important question to ask yeah. but going back slightly to my early point to your early point actually about um, discourse in academic institutions now funnily enough as an institution wanting to play the devil's advocate one could argue that they have to have a measure of impartiality and the fact is not that the presses or the academics don't know about the situation, they don't care. I had a personal mentor meeting with a mentor about my dissertation. And towards the end of it, I kind of mentioned how my, one of my motivations for study, wanting to study paediatrics, for example, was the, the conflict that's happening right now and mm. the need for paediatric support. Mm. And he almost teared up my, my mentor. He said, if I start talking about what's going on right now, I will, I will, completely, lose, I will completely lose it. Yeah. Because what is happening now is so unjust, so horrible. The world has seen this many times before. He was a survivor of genocide in in in, in, in Serbia, and you know he's seen in Eastern Europe. He'd seen what yeah, happened when yeah. he was growing up, and so he really related to that. And a lot of professors have this opinion, for example. However, similarly, the same department, for example, that the same department cancelled a lecture earlier on in the in the conflict by a Palestinian uh, speaker on I think it was unrelated topic, which had planned for a few months. They completely cancelled that lecture because of of. The conflict that's happening right yeah. now. There's no, there's no no leadership per se, and, and that's the censorship you were talking about. That's what that's what I mean as well. We uh, a lot of academic institutions now we try to create safe spaces mm. as they're referred to, but in reality, what these safe spaces mean is that certain discourses are not permitted. While you, what you want, what the mm. students want, is allowed to be spoken about, and this this culture about um, not permitting certain speakers to come to the university mm. simply because. Um, a certain part of society or a certain part of the students of the university disagree with that viewpoint mm. or find that offensive and I think that's disagreeable and one of the things that this brings us to is that even when we might feel that we've that offence has been caused for example something which Muslims as a Muslim I feel a lot of offence about and uh, displeasure about is when people um, insult the Holy Prophet peace be upon him mm. well, not just insult but also the cartoons as we know who, which has been a big debate uh, in media and etc in uh, uh, society. Um, my response isn't one of aggression and violence towards that. My response is one of discourse and dialogue. 
where I try to now tell you as to why it causes me offence and why I believe you should not do it and sit down with me and speak about that, right? Not the fact that this person now should be cancelled, they should face violence and they should be kicked out of institutions, etc, etc. It's only through dialogue and converse where we can come to a solution. And we've seen double standards in regards to this as well. Muslims have been saying for years that they feel offended by these kind of things, but there's been no change. Mm. But when it came to recently, the Guardian cartoonist drew a cartoon of Benjamin Netanyahu, yep. literally in the week after the conflict started, and he was immediately sacked and fired. After what? He was there for nearly two, three decades? Exactly. He'd been there for a long time, and he was sacked immediately. The Labour MP as well, who was sacked, who disagreed with Labour's policies, yeah, and he called for a ceasefire. Um, he, was, he was also asked to leave his position. So these double standards are something that we've been trying to point out for a while. We're saying that um, Muslims are not sensitive, as, as, as is claimed. It's just that we are speaking about the exact same things, about trying to create a harmonious society. And this only comes when we try to understand each other rather than um, fight for the right to offend each other. Mm. And that's really important. And I think this is also the solution to the current conflict. I think and this is the final point we want to come up to is that dialogue and converse. For example, in Haifa, in Israel, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community have been trying to hold interfaith dialogues, dialogues amongst different members of the community. And uh, what happened there in Haifa was that in our in the mosque, the Masjid Mahmoud Mosque, which is located in Haifa, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community invited their local neighbors, neighbors, which included Jews, Muslims of other denominations, including Druze as well. And over 600 members um, came together at the mosque there and they had a discussion in regards to what's currently taking place, the conflict that's taking place, and trying to bridge gaps and make um, and uh, um, break those boundaries that exist between you, the barriers that break exist between the two groups. And the, the reception from this was amazing because a lot of the local Jewish population in that area were understanding that the issue isn't with the Muslims. And these are Muslims telling us that saying that we don't want this conflict and we wanna we wanna unite. Um, over our differences and I think that's the most important thing when it comes to current uh, crisis as well is to sit down and have a discussion with those people who disagree with us mm. or Palestinians and Israelis who disagree with us but there's also a limit there when certain um, people do not sit, want to sit down they do not want to uh, stop this conflict and whatever they're saying they're only flaming the fire of the war then third parties need to get involved as uh, His Holiness Hazem Islam Masroor Ahmed has stated, is that one of the solutions of this is unity. As we've been see seeing on the streets of the UK, hundreds and thousands of people are coming together, they're uniting over this conflict. In the same way, he, sa wants, he says he wants to see the Muslim leaders, the leaders around the Middle East, uh, around Palestine, to unite and try to come up with a resolution for the Palestinians. Because simple, just uniting themselves uh, shows strength. Mm. It, not necessarily that they need to unite and now take action against uh, any opposing party. Simply them uniting is a big, big show of strength. And that will give not only strength to the Palestinians, but also to their own socio-economic and political circumstances as well. Um, and also he's been mentioning in regards to even some Western countries have taken a better approach towards this conflict. For example, Norway has been um, quite vocal about the injustices that have been taking place and they've been calling for a ceasefire. Mm. I know a lot of the, 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 the leading party in Spain has been doing the same as well. Mm. But uh, the people who really have the responsibility and the power, which is, let's say, the US, who are currently calling all the shots, mm. right? no one else is really getting a say here, they have a right responsibility in trying to come to a solution as well. And actually, the, 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 there is someone, uh, Blinken, who went to Israel this last week after doing the ceasefire 
and uh, he's also spoken about that Israel need to really hold back. And this is surprising coming from the US, who've been very open in their support. And he's saying that they need to minimize civilian casualties as well. Have you been seeing that the ceasefire actually stopped slightly before it was supposed to? And the uh, conflict has now carried on. In fact, the night straight after the, the ceasefire, it's been reported that it's been the worst night of bombardment in the mm. south of mm. Gaza, near Khan Yunis. You know, I've been doing some, uh, you know, this, the, during the conflict, it's been such a long time, um, you know, for self reflection. And um, I just, I was just doing some self reflection the other day, and I was just thinking of uh, a quote His Holiness, Hazem Mizamasur Ahmed, Fifth Caliph of the Muslim Community, which he um, presented, or he had a, um, he had a speech at um, Capitol Hill, and mm. uh, it's one of the really uh, nicest um, quotes that, and it was really basic, but I didn't understand it, and I, and I s- didn't understand to sort of like right now you can say or just sort of recently, and the quote was um, there w- without without justice there will be no peace, mm. and I was like this this quote is it sounds so simple. Uh, sorry, the the quote was sorry. The truth is that um, the truth is that uh, peace and justice are inseparable. You cannot have one without the other, mm. right? And it was it, it, it's a quote that I really like because it's really simple. Uh, it was easy, but I never understood what it meant. But now that this th- this conflict has come out, because you sort of compare it with the conflict that's happening in Ukraine now, right? Because ideally you go to, you go to see you know okay a conflict like this has happened what has uh, governments done uh, the big superpowers before they you know they helped out Ukraine uh, you know uh, showed that they they're, they're willing to mm. uh, long this war out as long as possible to be with the people of Ukraine fine but then you you see what's happening in Palestine uh, and Israel uh, what's happening to the people you start to think well there is no justice so you're not going to get peace. And ultimately, justice means that you uh, handle everything equally and equitably uh, amongst people and amongst different um, conflicts, regardless of who that, that they may be. Okay, yeah. Israel is a uh, powerful ally uh, to the U.S. and the Western nation due to its geographical um, uh, um, location in the Middle East. That it's between uh, a lot of countries being of course uh, Egypt, uh, Syria, Turkey uh, Iran, Iraq close by nations right which um, uh, the West has problems or have had problems in the past and close to uh, Russia as well mm. ultimately right it's only in conf- situations like this that you start to understand what His Holiness meant by all of these uh, uh, speeches that they're not actually uh, they're not just actually merely speeches but they're actually powerful words that have meanings down the line that we don't seem to understand at the time yeah. but we do right now and that was a sort of a small uh, evaluation or self-reflection that I was having the other day uh, mm. because I really love this quote because it was really simple and it's on my WhatsApp status for some time as well now I had it but I never understood why I put it on there but it's just whenever I come to read uh, his own book this is one of the quotes that always stands out for me yeah and I think over the last seven eight weeks as well his holiness has been um, standing forth um, and speaking about the injustice and the double standards that we've been seeing in the media. And the reason why he says that everyone should be wary of what's uh, what ha- happening is because they think that this conflict will be restricted to the local areas where it's taking place, including Russia, Ukraine, including Israel, Palestine. But he says that the world is so interconnected right now. 
where one conflict happening in one part of the world indirectly or directly affects everyone else, but it also has the potential to easily spiral out of control and become a global conflict. And he says that we've got so many leaders who are now very trigger happy that uh, within an instant, without thinking twice about it, they are very um, eager to encourage and go for conflict rather than resolution. Mm. Um, and we should seriously pray in the current circumstances to for for such a situation to be avoided, that we do not go into a global conflict. Because as we are seeing the weapons which are being used in Gaza right now, which are completely have demolished more than half of the in- infrastructure in the area, mm. even more now probably, mm. um, that uh, we have weapons which can absolutely annihilate and cause absolute catastrophe to the whole world. I think it's that point that the more you look into the history of organizations, the League of Nations, the United Nations, you look into organizations like the WHO, you look at impartial international organizations, the more you deep dive into what they stand for, how they were founded, who they were founded by, why they were founded, who are they funded by, why they're funded by them, you realize that the world is not what my 10 year old, 12 year old innocent self seemed that everyone's all about peace and love and harmony. Mm. Everybody has their own best interests. Everyone has their biases. People give money. There's a fund for malaria. It comes with strings attached. Mm-hmm. There's a HIV fund. It comes with strings attached. All these things, we think corruption is limited to, to the global south or South Asian countries or whatever. But corruption of a higher, way higher scale is happening before our very eyes. And we're just going along blindly with it. And that is, I think, that tr- mistrust in establishment that that, that, that causes... And don't get me wrong, there have been some good leaders and some some good some countries and some good politicians. But the overall motivation is the overall, we have to accept the fact that at this moment, it's an unjust world. And as His Holiness, his series of lectures uh, were so aptly named that we should try and spread as much justice as we can in yeah. an unjust world. Yeah, and I think this is a perfect way of finishing off the show today as well. Um, and just to just to um, rewind back, we've discussed uh, our various news stories in regards to what's been taking place, and we've also spoken about the COP28 uh, that's taking place over the next two weeks, um, and in regards to the implications, the effects of the Palestine-Israel conflict that have been having, happening on us and also in the local areas in the wider world as well. But I want to thank everyone for listening in this morning. Uh, I've been your host, Rohan Rachima, joined by Umar Bhatti and Malik Takrim Ahmed. Uh, we'll see you at our next.